Okay, my name is Tom Rappaport. I'm from the Department of Cell Biology, Harvard Medical School, also a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator. So this is the second of my two lectures, and the first lecture was about how organelles are generated, and this lecture will be dealing with how they are shaped. So let me start by reminding you that there, each organelle has a characteristic shape. Some organelles look more or less like spheres. So for example, uh, the peroxisomes, which are organelles that are involved in lipid metabolism and also detoxification, mostly of hydrogen peroxide. Endosomes, which are organelles that are involved in uptake of proteins from the outside. Lysosomes, which are organelles which degrade proteins and other material. And secretory granules, which store proteins before these proteins are secreted. These organelles more or less look like spheres. Some organelles consist of sheets, which are membrane, uh, flat membranes that are closely opposed to one another. And this would be, for example, in the Golgi, where you have many of these sheets stacked on top of each other, or the inner and outer nuclear membranes, which are closely opposed to one another, or the mitochondria cristae, which are these invagination of the inner mitochondria membrane. These are membrane sheets. Some organelles consist of tubules, and perhaps the most uh, prominent organelle in that respect is the endoplasmic reticulum membrane, also abbreviated by ER. Some organelles, like endosomes and also Golgi, also occasionally have tubules. So in all these cases, you have a characteristic shape, and you can ask the question of how these shapes are generated and maintained. I will be particularly uh, talking about the endoplasmic reticulum, which I believe we understand the best how this shape is generated. So this slide shows on the right side the uh, ER in a uh, mammalian cell stained with a green fluorescent protein, uh, so the green color here. And what you see here is the most beautiful part of the, uh, of the endoplasmic reticulum, which is a tubular network. These are tubules that are connected by three-way junctions, usually, into a polygonal network. And then interdispersed in this network are sheet structures, which are flat membranes, closely opposed to one another. It's better seen on the scheme on the right. So the yellow thing is a sheet that is interdispersed into this polygonal network. And then the R is continuous with the nuclear envelope. So you initially have a connection between the peripheral R and the outer nuclear membrane, and then where the pores are located, these red things, you have a connection between the outer nuclear membrane and the inner nuclear membrane. So the whole thing is a continuous membrane system with a common luminous space. Every protein in the yard, in principle, could diffuse freely across throughout the entire membrane system, and yet we have specific domains, specific morphologies in the R. And so we're interested in the question of how do you set up these different morphologies. Now, before I go into this, I would like to go back in history and uh, talk about briefly where the name endoplasmic reticulum actually came from. And the name was coined by this person, Keith Porter. Keith Porter was, at the time, working at the Rockefeller Institute before it became a university. And he was one of the first people to actually use the electron microscope, uh, microscope on live cells. Now, at the time, you had to use tissue culture cells and look at the periphery of the cell, which were flat, so there was not too much stuff when you were looking 
through the cell. And so he looked at the periphery of the cell, and what he saw were two zones in the cell, which he called ecto and endoplasm. The ectoplasm was devoid of organelles, and today we would call it lamellapodia, because they were mostly actin, but there was no uh, organelles. And then further inside the cell, there was a, a zone that he called the endoplasm, in which you did see organelles. And in this area, he saw a lace-like structure, which he called the endoplasmic reticulum, reticulum meaning a network, uh, a lace-like structure. So this is where the name came from. Now, a few years later, another important person joined the group at Rockefeller, George Pallade, and he noticed that the arc can be distinguished into two very distinct domains, which he called the rough and smooth ER. Now, at that point, people had developed the mycotome, so you could actually look at real tissues. It's like a, like a guillotine. You can slice very thin sections from the tissue, and you can use the microscope, electromicroscope, to look at those. And what he saw is that in some cells, mostly cells that secrete a lot of proteins, for example, a pancreatic cell, the, the R membranes were stacked on top of each other. This is a cut through a lot of sheets that are stacked on top of each other. And what he saw were little dots sitting on the outside of these membranes, and he identified those as ribosomes. So, George Palladi is the discoverer of the ribosomes. Now we know that the rough ER, so he called it rough ER because the surface was rough with these little dots, we know that this rough ER is doing all the protein translocation that I talked about in my previous lecture, this is where the protein folding and protein modification is going on. But often, in other cells, for example, adrenal cells, you saw what, what, they, what he called the smoothie R, because there were no ribosomes sitting on it. And if you look in cross-section, it looked like little vesicles. But of course, because it's cross-section, these are actually tubules. So the smoothie R, roughly speaking, is tubules. And this is a site where lipid synthesis happens, calcium signaling, and very likely also contact to other organelles. So, and if what I'm going to do now is I will talk about morphology of DR, but please keep in mind that this distinction between morphologies also has functional implications. So, how are the different domains of DR generated? So, we first concentrated on the question of how the tubular ER network is generated. And if you think about it, it really breaks down into two questions. First question is how are the tubules themselves generated? And second, how do you fuse the tubules to form a network? And then later in the talk, I will be dealing with the question of how, what are the minimum components to form a membrane uh, network, and how are peripheral ER sheets formed, and finally, how are the sheets stacked on top of each other? Um, so let's start with the question of how the ER tubules are formed. So to make a long story short, ER tubules are actually shaped by two protein families. They're called the reticulons. In yeast, there are two members of the reticulons called RTN1 and RTN2, and the REAPs, which in yeast are called YOP1. There's only one member of this family. These protein families have no sequence similarity to each other, but they share the same topology. 
They have two sets of closely spaced transmembrane segments. We call them hairpins. So there are two hairpins. There's a loop in between the two hairpins. And then there's an amphipathic helix following the second transmembrane segment, uh, the second hairpin stru uh, structure. So how were the reticulons discovered? This goes back to uh, work from a former student of mine who developed an in vitro assay for the recapitulation of the R network formation. So it's, it's, the assay goes as follows. So you take the eggs from the uh, frog, Xenopus labus, you put them in a centrifuge tube, you do a, a, a spin, a centrifuge, which is usually called the crush spin, and then you take the supernatant and spin really hard to get the membrane fraction. And then you take the membranes, and it turns out these membranes are consisting of small vesicles, and you incubate them at room temperature for 60 minutes in the presence of GTP. And what happens is that these vesicles fuse and form an elaborate network, and you can stain it with a fluorescent hydrophobic dye that partitions into the bilayers shown in the lower panel. So this is an vitro acid that recapitulates the formation of the endoplasmic reticulum network. And then a former postdoc in the lab, Gia Veltz, used the system to identify the reticulons as important for the network formation. And the way she did that is by using a system-modifying reagent that she could show blocks the formation of the network formation, but it did not block the fusion of the, pro of the vesicles into larger uh, vesicles. And then she used a biotinylation reagent called biotin maliamide. Maliamide is a reagent that interacts with, that modifies cysteines. And she sh identified on the basis of the biotin, of biotinylation, the major proteins that were modified in the system. And so there were several candidates. She went through the candidates and identified reticulum 4A as the likely candidate for being involved in network formation. Then she raised an antibody to reticulum 4A and showed that the antibody inhibited network formation just as the biotinylation reagent did. And again, this inhibited network formation but not membrane fusion. And so on the basis of this, we concluded that reticulum 4A was required for network formation. Now the other class of proteins, the reproteins, or in yeast job 1, were discovered as interaction partners of the reticulons. So you simply pull on one and you find the other one. And then experiments in yeast showed that the reticulons and the Yob1 have redundant function. If you delete all three proteins, there is no ER network formation anymore. But it is actually, uh, you need to knock out all three. So here are a few facts about the reticulons and the REAPs. So first of all, they're necessary to generate ER tubules but there's redundancy. I just mentioned this, so you need to delete all three of them to see really defects in ER morphology. If you bring back one, you get ER network back. So they're sufficient to generate tubules, so you can purify these proteins, reconstitute them into proteoliposomes, and then they form short tubules as shown by electron microscopy. They're found in all eukaryotic cells. In mammals, there are quite a number of isoforms for each of these proteins. They form oligomers. And finally, they're very abundant, which you might expect because the R is, is an abundant organelle throughout the cell. So you need a lot of protein to actually um, form the R network.
Now, these proteins, we believe, are curvature-stabilizing proteins. What do I mean by that? If you look at cross-section of a tubule, uh, you have high membrane curvature. The energetically most stable state of a membrane is a flat membrane. So, in order to generate a tubule, you need energy. It's an energetically unfavorable state. And you have a similar state at the edges of membrane sheets. If you think about it, this is half a cylinder, and the other one is a full cylinder. So, it's the same, what we call positive membrane curvature. And we believe that these proteins are stabilizing this curvature. Now, how exactly they do this is really not entirely clear. What I'm presenting you here is a hypothesis. So, we believe that the two hairpin structures, um, plus the amphipathic helix at the seat terminus, together form a wedge-shaped structure that occupies more space in the outer leaflet than in the inner leaflet. So, this alone would probably just generate a small vesicle with high membrane curvature. So, in addition to that, we assume that these proteins form oligomers, both homo- and hetero-oligomers, and these oligomers might take the shape of an arc that molds the bilayer into a tubule. So, these two mechanisms together might form the tubules. But I have to say, this is speculation, and one of the projects that we have is to get an X-ray structure of these proteins to actually address that, how they actually generate tubules, uh, the high curvature. So, now to the second question. So, now you have a tubule, now you need to connect the tubules into a network. Uh, how do you do that? And this brings me to the role of membrane-bound GDPases, which are called atlastins in metazones, and say one and their homologs of it, in yeast and plants. And this is a co was a collaboration with a group of Craig Blackstone and Will Prince, who are both at the NIH. So, the structure of these GTPases is approximately like this. So, you have a cytoplasmic GTPase domain, and then a helix bundle, which in the case of atlastin consists of three helices. And then again, you have two closely spaced transmembrane segments, a hairpin, and an amphipathic helix. So, this should... this looks very similar to the case of the reticulons and reaps, except here you only have one hairpin rather than two. But we believe that this hairpin plus amphipathic helix is a general targeting signal to direct proteins to the high membrane curvature areas of the endoplasmic reticulum. So, these proteins mediate what we call homotypic fusion. Homotypic meaning that the membranes that fuse are the same, as opposed to in vesicular trafficking, where you have a vesicle fusing with a membrane that is not the same. That would be called heterotypic. So, this model... Uh, this scheme shows a model of how we envision this... Uh, this fusion to happen, and it's based on X-ray structures and a lot of biochemical experiments that we did in collaboration with Jinji Su, who was a former postdoc and is back now in China. So, you're starting out with a lasting molecule sitting in different membranes. First thing that happens is that the GTPase domains bind GTP, and this allows them to interact with one another. And then there's a GTP hydrolysis happening, and in the transition state of GTP hydrolysis, the two three helix bundles interact with one another. This pulls the membranes together so that they can fuse. And then, after the fusion reaction, uh, you release phosphate and GDP, you go back to the monomeric state, and you can start a new cycle of fusion again. 
So this shows uh, the two X-ray structures that gave rise to some of this. Um, so you sh the upper panel is the structure where the two, mem where the two GTPases sit in different membranes, and the lower structure shows after fusion when they are sitting in the same membrane. And I should mention that there is an interesting disease called hereditary spastic paraplegia, HSP, uh, which is actually quite a terrible disease. It's, uh, the children have a progressive weakening of the lower limbs, and also spasticity, and there's uh, quite a number of mutations that map into atlastin. Uh, one of the atlastins, there are three isoforms, one of the atlastins, and we can map the mutations that give rise to this disease into our X-ray structures, and they make kind of sense. So there would be uh, interfering with the conformational change that we believe has to happen during fusion. And so the conclusion here is that this disease may be caused by ER morphology defects or specifically by ER fusion defects. So we can also test the role of atlastin in the uh, Xenopus egg extract system that I mentioned before that led actually to the discovery of the reticulons. So what we can he do here is we can express recombinantly a fragment of atlastin, which actually corresponds to the cytosolic fragment that we also use for crystalliz crystallization. So you can take that fragment, purify it, and put it into the Xenopus extract system, and it will bind to the endogenous full-length protein and interfere with its function. So it's a dominant negative reagent. And when you do that, uh, I should say the way we test for fusion is by using two different membrane fractions from the Xenopus system. One we label with a red dye and the other one with a green dye. So if we mix them, we expect them to fuse and to mix the colors. So if you add the cytoplasmic fragment, which interferes with the endogenous uh, and the, uh, atlasin molecule, as you can see, the membrane fragments stay separate, so you see green and red dots, which don't mingle with each other. But if you make just a single mutation in the cytoplasmic fragment, which no longer interferes with the endogenous fragment, you can see that now the, you get fusion into an ER network and it stains yellow because the two colors are now co-localizing. So I think this experiment is a very nice illustration to show that atlasin is re indeed required for fusion, and it's in fact the only fusogen that is required for fusing these membranes. But here's a surprise. We expected that the atlasin would only be required for the fusion e event, and once you have the honor work, you would no longer need it. But that's not the case. It turns out that if you add the cytoplasmic fragment after you form the network, the network disassembles. So this is shown here. Here we're adding two different concentrations, and at the highest concentration of this fragment, the R network uh, completely disappears. So you break it down into smaller fragments. If you have this uh, inactive fragment, nothing happens, so nice control. And also, if we add GTP gamma S, which is a non-hydrolyzable or purely hydrolyzable GTP analog, which also interferes with the function of, G of the atlassian GTPase, we see the same thing. So the R network requires continuous function, continuous action of the atlassian molecule. So here, atlassian is required to both form and to maintain in the R network. And this also means that the endogenous levels of the reticulons and reaps 
are not sufficient to maintain the ER network in the absence of a plasmid function. We can also show that in mammalian cells, when you overexpress one of the isoforms of reticulon, it's called reticulum 4A, that le leads to very long tubules and ER fragmentation, and this can be reversed by also overexpressing the atlasin. So it's kind of a yin-yang situation. The balance of atlasin and reticulons is required to maintain the integrity of the ER network. So this scheme shows it again. So if you have too much reticulum 4A, you disassemble the network into small vesicles. We believe that the reticulon prefers the even higher curvature of small vesicles over that in tubules. And that's the reason why you disassemble the network into these small vesicles. And so you need a plasmid function in order to move back the, the small vesicles into the ER network. So it, the atlasin is basically counteracting this curvature-generating function of the reticulum. There's one more point I'd like to make, which is also uh, speculative, I have to say. We don't very often see of very often free ends of ER tubules, both in mammalian cells and in xenopus extracts. And so we think that the free ends of, of membrane tubules are actually prone to disassembly. If you think about it, the free end of a tubule is already half a, a vesicle. And so that's why we think it's unstable. And so the, tubule, the free end of these ER tubules are therefore anchored normally in cells, either by having fused with another uh, tubule, so to generate a three-way junction, or by association with a molecular motor or with microtubule tips. So now I'm going to ask the question, what are the minimum components to form the membrane network? So can we form a membrane network with the purified proteins that we've already identified? In other words, are the identified proteins, the, the curvature-stabilizing proteins, the reticulons and the REAPs, and the fusion GTPases, the atlasin or say one, sufficient to form the R network. And so the experiment that we did is conceptually quite simple. So we take purified say one or atlasin and your one, we have to purify them in detergent because these are membrane proteins. We constitute them into proteoliposomes together with a hydrophobic fluorescent dye so we can actually visualize the membranes. Then we incubate the proteoliposomes with or without GDP, and then we finally visualize everything in a confocal microscope. And lo and behold, in the, in the absence of GDP, you just see small dots. But if you add GDP, these, you see a beautiful network. Now, in this case, it's perhaps not as beautiful, but as you will see in the next slide, it can be extremely beautiful. So in other words, we can form a network from just these two proteins. If you have them individually, either your one or say one, it doesn't work. In the presence of, uh, in the case of say one, if you add GDP, you see a little larger vesicles because there is still fusion going on, but there is no network, so you need both proteins to form the network. And as I said, sometimes the network looks really amazing. Here we're mixing say one and yop one, and we can form a really nice network. And here's another example of the network really being very beautiful, as beautiful as we see it in xenopus extract or in mammalian cells, perhaps even more. 
So the network, again, as an Xenopus system, requires continuous function of the fusion GTPAs. If we block its function by adding GTP gamma s, again, the network, freefold network, disassembles in no time into smaller structures, uh, small vesicles, or perhaps not so small vesicles. We're not quite sure about that. So the conclusion here is that one curvature-stabilizing protein, one mo molecule, uh, one, one, one member of the curvature-stabilizing protein families, and one fusion GDPase are sufficient to form a tubular Young network. I think it's a very surprising result that you can form an entire organelle by just two proteins. Uh, I, I think uh, pretty remarkable. So now I'm going to switch gears and ask the question, how are the peripheral sheets formed? And the, uh, at least one mechanism seems to be quite similar to that, what we just discussed in the case of tubule-shaping uh, proteins. And this brings me back to this uh, thing that what I mentioned before, that these proteins not only form the high curvature of tubules, but they can also sit at the sheet edges. And the edges have the same membrane curvature as the tubules themselves. So it's not surprising that they would also stabilize the sheets, because if you do stabilize the edges, you actually also generate sheets. And you can play, actually, games. The, the sheet's size depends on the amount of phospholipids. If you add more phospholipids, you get more sheets. If you increase the concentration of the reticulons, you get more tubules. So you can play games between sheets and tubules, but essentially it's the same principle. Now, in mammalian cells, there may be other mechanisms. So, in yeast, perhaps the mechanism I just described is the only one that you need to form sheets. But in mammalian cells, there are other proteins that help forming sheets. And one of these proteins is a protein called CLIM63, which was discovered by Hans-Peter Hauer's group. And this, this protein has a large luminal domain. It's a single-spanning membrane protein. And it seems that it forms anti-parallel coil-coil structure across the two membrane sheets. And so it keeps, actually, the two membrane sheets at a larger distance than you would find in yeast. So the distance in mammalian cells is about 50 nanometers. In yeast, it's about 30 nanometers. And this protein increases the size from 30 to 50 nanometers. If you knock it out, or actually deplete it, then you get a larger distance, a smaller distance between the two membrane sheets. Why it does it is not so clear, but perhaps it is allows more space for chaperones to work inside the ER. Um, that's just one idea. So then the final question I want to address is how are the sheets stacked on top of each other? And this brings me back to these amazing pictures that George Palladi and others have taken many, many years ago. Again, this is a, a cut through uh, a, a stacked membrane sheets that you see in what we call professional secretory cells, like pancreatic cells, which secrete maybe 90% of all the proteins that they actually make. And as I mentioned, there's this densely uh, ribosome sitting on the membrane. So we were interested in the question of how these sheets are connected with one another. The simplest idea that was out there was that maybe proteins on the cytoplasmic side would stack with, interact with one another and keep the membranes at equidistance from each other. Turns out not to be correct. 
So the way we address this, and we meaning here uh, collaboration uh, between uh, Mark Terasaki from Yukon and Jeff Lichtman from Harvard, Jeff Lichtman's group had developed a new method of how to analyze in a systematic way uh, membranes. And so the way that it works is in the following way. So you, you take mice and you fix them and you stain the tissue. Then you cut very thin sections, 30 to 40 nanometers in thickness, and you collect these uh, sections on a, on a running tape. And then you feed the slices, these thin slices, directly into the scanning electromicroscope. And then so you get different pictures of consecutive slices, and then you use a computer to reconstruct, uh, reconstruct the 3D structure of the, of the structure. And this is what we saw. So these layers are the membrane sheets that you previously saw in the electron microscope. And then if you look closely, you can see that there is a helical connection from one level to the next level. So we call it a helicoid. And for obvious reasons, we call it a parking garage. Because if you think about it, it is like a parking garage. You have a layer, and then you have a helical ramp. You go up the helical ramp, you're in the next level of the parking garage. You go up, and you're in the next level of the parking garage. This is exactly how it looks like in this case. Now, this is membranes that connect these different uh, levels of the, these different membrane sheets. Now, because this is a helicoid, it has a handedness, so it can be either right or left-handed. And indeed, when we analyzed it, we find left and right-handed helicoids in about equal numbers, as you might expect. So what is the significance of this? Now, in the case of the R, you have these sheets that are connected by these helical uh, ramps to get from one sheet to the next. And so the whole organelle behaves as one unit. When you have a protein that enters the ER at this place, it can diffuse throughout the entire ER. And so the organelle behaves as one thing. This is very different from the sheets stacking in the Golgi. So in the Golgi, you indeed have cytoplasmic proteins that connect the different sheets with one another, but there's no membrane connection between the different sheets. And so you keep each of these stacks separate. And you want to do that because each of the Golgi stacks has a separate enzyme composition. And you need to move a protein from one side to the other side of the Golgi in a very defined way. You don't want the enzymes to be mixed up altogether. So, Completely different way of how you stack the sheets on top of each other, but makes very much sense. So this brings me to the end of this talk, and I want to point out that on, the le on, on this side here you have the original ER structure that was seen by Keith Porter uh, a, lo a long time ago. And uh, we've made some progress. We have identified proteins that generate the high curvature, We've generated, um, we've, uh, we've understood how proteins can be uh, generating sheets. We have uh, been able to reconstitute the tubular network in, in vitro, and we have also learned how the stacking might happen. However, there's many, many questions that remain unanswered. Just to give you one example, we still don't understand which proteins are forming these helicoids. In, in, in secretory cells. And, and 
uh, how the sheets actually are really formed and how you generate rough and smooth ER uh, domains in the ER is still very unclear. Okay, finally, these are the people who actually contributed to this work. Um, they are the heroes who actually did the work. And uh, thank you for your attention.